From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. All right. Good afternoon, Ben, and welcome to episode number 20 of the Campfire Conversations with One Campfire. T appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Good day. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to set this up for a while, but over the holiday season, things get busy, people get busy. So, yeah, we we made it work today. And it's it's a weird, weird winter, as you can probably attest. We had, what, minus 55 some odd here with the wind about a week ago, and Three days ago, we had six or seven degrees above, and it's about minus five right now and kind of snowing. So, yeah, it's 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 been a weird winter. <laughs> what, do you, what are you feeling about it for you over where you are? Yeah, no, we've got the same weather system you did. We just were out on the trap line a couple days ago, and uh, the Martin, once it's about minus 15 or colder, they basically mm -hmm. they don't like coming out unless there's especially if there's not a lot of snow because they got nowhere to hide they'll freeze to death out there so yeah still picked up about three yeah. and i just got a text from my boy he just got another martin just now so this next check's gonna awesome. be awesome because they really start to move once it warms up after a long cold snap so i don't mind it i, I like the cold weather you get the bush to yourself most of the time <laughs> it can be a little hard yeah. on equipment but uh yeah I yeah i enjoy it beats last year where we had uh middle of winter it melted all the snow i actually had mm -hmm. wolves set up across a creek and then the uh all of a sudden the creek was open in the middle of january which i've never seen before so you're having to you know basically drive across the water with snowmobiles and that can get a little exciting yeah i, I feel that one as, as well so Let's get into a little bit about you, who you are, uh, where you're from, where'd you grow up, and a little bit. Let's let's dig into to who you were as a, a, a kid and basically your story till today, if you don't mind. Sure. So my name is Ben Brochu, and I uh, live in DeBolt, Alberta, so northern Alberta, kind of northwest side of things. I grew up about a couple hours from here in a little place called Donnelly, actually a French-Canadian community. So culturally, it's quite different than even where we are here now. Um I've always had an interest in the outdoors. Um, people always ask me, you know, did your dad take you do all these things? And, and I'm sure he would have liked to, but he was working. So my, my major connection that way was for my birthday every year, once I got a little bit older, he would take me out to the trap line, which uh, just we call it the trap line. It was his great uncle's trap line, but there was a cabin there. A, and we would hunt squirrels and chickens. We call them rough grouse and uh really got gave me the taste of it and uh i don't know somewhere along the line in a grad sale or something someone gave me boxes of old like fur fish and game magazines so i was just a voracious reader as a kid so i would read these magazines and i think i had an alberta trappers manual that i got 
somehow grad sale too, same thing. And I just like devoured that whole thing. So I'm whatever, eight years old. And it was kind of different in those days. I'd be out hunting, trapping by myself and just figuring it out and experimenting and learning as I went. And uh, always uh, had a connection to the land and to the people who had a connection to the land. And I've carried that through to this day. That's pretty awesome. I, uh, I I grew up in Vancouver, so you can well imagine I I didn't grow up as a hunter or an outdoors person, but I always had that that draw. I literally stared at. I don't know if you know Vancouver or Burnaby very well. A little bit, but yeah, my I, sister used to live there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I grew up literally across the street from Central Park. So I could stare out the window at the forest and we were in there as kids as much as we could catching gutter snakes and fishing in the ponds there and catching catfish and crayfish and all that. But I actually didn't get into to hunting until my twenties. So it's a relatively new thing for me, 20 some odd years, but it, it, it's always, it's always interesting to, to talk with people about the connection that we all seem to to share no matter how you grew up with it whether or not you grew up like yourself as as a young boy getting into it or somebody who gets into it later in life it's always that same thing there was just the the, the word we keep hearing is there's a draw to it and it's not really something you can you can describe unless you're out there doing it so with the trap line thing um is that close to where you are now was that is that a, a family run thing yeah, so we have a junior partnership on two trap lines. It's about 45 minutes from where we live. Um, so we've been doing that the last, this be the third season out there. Um, before, like I grew up doing it and just kind of self-directed learning as I go. And when my oldest son, Silas, he's kind of got the same bug that I did where he magazines or stories and I hadn't done it uh, for a while. Um, and it just got, I did a lot of hunting. I've always done some guiding on the side since I've been 18. I worked for an outfitter since I was 16. Um, but once he got back into it, that motivated me to get back into it. So we did some residential stuff just around our place. Cause we always had like, we caught 33 coyotes within a mile of our house. The first year we got into it, you know, and, uh, yeah, Silas was so motivated that we, uh, you know, pursued trying to find more places to trap. And uh, that's what we've been doing. We caught, I think, 65 Martin the first year. We tried hard at it and uh, 63 last year. And uh, just been kind of learning every time. And just being out there, is, it's a whole it's a whole different thing. You're connected to a land in a way that, you know, you're saying with hunters, you kind of just get it, right? And that's part of what I've been blessed to do is, introduce people to uh the wildlife that we're part of and that's all around us and understanding how things work in my day job i'm a problem wildlife officer so I, I deal with animal damage control and uh it's interesting to see people's perspectives uh shift as they become closer and more connected and that can happen vicariously i'm getting questions on a daily basis uh about wildlife from all over the world and it's, it's really interesting, the conversations that can uh, come out of uh, just sharing a little bit about what we're up to. So, Completely agree. And that, that just segues beautifully into how we connected through your, your social media page called Hinterland Outdoors. And I see your, your posts daily where you're... You're putting a picture out, for, for example, last night, the picture of the, the trails through the bush of the otter. 
like the, the snow tracks. And it's amazing the amount of people that jump on that and they go, it's this, it's this, it's this. And then the, the critical thinking that comes along with it. And well, why don't you think there was one, one comment that said that can't be an otter, it's in the bush. And you constructively kind of directed for an understanding of, well, yeah, they, they do travel, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's an opportunity to educate and kind of share what, what we do. And I, I also do problem wildlife control as well, not as a full-time, but I, I do it on the side. That's cool. So it, I've done it for a few years and I, I've learned a ton from just sharing information and sharing pictures and, and shared conversations. So let's, let's dig into Hinterland Outdoors. How did that come about? And what, what's the story behind it? And you've got quite the evolution to where you are now because you've got a heck of a following. You know, it's been honestly somewhat accidental. Um, we originally created that page in 2019 where um, I had stepped down from my previous job, needed a break, wanted to spend more time with my family. And uh, we basically left everything behind and bought a sailboat in Mexico. So we uh, went... You know, it was, and basically to have a Canadian flag vessel in Mexico, your name of your boat is your license plate, right? Like, so the name had to be something that was unique and not already taken. So we, we tried to think of a name for the boat and uh, hinterland means the area beyond what is known, right? And that's kind of the symbolic of what we're doing. You know, we are from the prairies, uh, the uh, we're going to just take the plunge and live on a sailboat in Mexico. And that's what we did and just had an amazing time exploring some really remote areas in the Sea of Cortez and living off fish and rice. And, you know, Silas is kind of kid. He grabs every wild animal he can. So he's catching catfish with his bare hands. And we found out they had spines and he got spined by a scorpion fish. And, you know, classic Silas is always catching snakes or this or whatever, but we just, it was a really good time as a family. And, you know, our kids started barely being able to swim to where towards the end, the younger kids would place their orders with Silas for what kind of fish they wanted. And he would go spearfish. You'd go find out, get one goat fish and one trigger fish and one, one of these. And uh, so, yeah, we, we did that for five months. And uh, when we got back, we had quite a few people following along on the trip. Uh, so I didn't, post nothing for a while and then I started guiding right away it's the first time I was free to do a whole season of guiding um so I just shared started sharing some pictures of that and of course there was a few people who kind of checked out at that point because it was a bit of a topic change you know hunting uh, trapping was a new concept for for some people but uh, it actually started gaining a lot of traction so it just kind of kept doing it from the guiding once Silas started doing more trapping and then because fur prices have been so low, it was kind of a way for Silas. He learned he's been tanning all his own hides. So it's a way for him to connect uh, with people who were looking for a souvenir wall hanger of a Martin or whatever. And so we kind of just kept up with that. And uh, I actually like the social aspect of social media. It, it's not a promotion thing, but it's the connection thing. And I enjoy meeting like-minded people and making connections to where now it's basically wherever I go, I can find a connection with someone I know a little bit or knows us a little bit. And uh, it's a starting point, right? And uh, so I really enjoy that. Yeah, I, I see that. Now that you, you mentioned Silas 
uh, selling the, the tanned furs. I remember seeing that a couple of years ago, and I think that's probably when I hit the like button going, oh, that's pretty cool seeing a kid so invested in it and trying to make a little bit of pocket money, but also learning about sound wildlife management. And that's what it all boils down to, right? And I, th I think there's a big disconnect uh, with, unfortunately, with a lot of people that don't understand that there's so much more to hunting and trapping and then just going out and taking the, the biggest, gnarliest animal. There's actual science-based seasons behind it and there's regulations and there's, uh, with, with some stuff, there's re compulsory reporting and inspections, et cetera, et cetera. And I love the way you, 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 as you said, you, you kind of connect people to it. It's a social thing. It's a, it's an opportunity to learn. And that's, that's a huge part of why I'm a big fan of the page and how you do things. So you bought a sailboat in Mexico. What it's completely different, of uh, than where you're at now. It just, as somebody who grew up in the prairies and obviously invested in the outdoors, what was, what was the attraction to that? Uh, that's a good question. I've always been an explorer. Like I'm an outdoorsman, but I, I like to try new things. I'm not intimidated by stuff. Like when I was in college, I got kind of bored. So I started getting my pilot's license because I wanted to learn how to fly. And then it was just like, well, I can't really afford a plane. So then try something else, you know, and I don't need to be the kind of person who's a master at any one thing. But I, I love uh, trying new experiences and sharing the joy of that. And I think that's why I, I share pictures and videos is that it amplifies the experience because you're getting to uh, share that what you're learning and um, what you're experiencing with more people. So it gets reflected back to you and it, it magnifies the experience for me. So uh, I basically, honestly, I think it was YouTube where I got, I seen somehow it popped up where some one sailing with their family and I just started bugging my wife like uh you know we should do that when we retire you know and then all of a sudden it came up well why not do it now with the kids and I'm just like what we can so yeah we did and uh it was just a phenomenal uh time we basically bought a little trailer sailor this well I bought it in the middle of the winter uh in Edmonton uh, sight unseen for five grand and then went and picked it up and uh, we went sailing on the sunshine coast of bc there we launched at porto cove there and we went up to all the way up uh, to around lund somewhere and uh just kind of jumped in and uh but even even in that by the time we bought the boat in mazalan and uh the only reason we got out of there was there's this really cool lady named Ava from Sweden who had actually same kind of thing where she was going through like a midlife crisis and uh, got a sailboat, sailed it to the ocean, sailed across the ocean. And they found out after she had, she gave us a book that she had written and uh, she's like, don't read it until we leave. Cause there's so many crazy stories. In it. <laughs> but anyway, she convinced us to leave Mazalan for Banderas Bay, which is by Puerto Vallarta. So our, our first time sailing our boat was like 250 kilometer jaunt, like overnight sail. And we basically learned as we went, we learned how to anchor the boat a cup day or two before the old gentleman in the uh, Marina kind of took us under wing and showed us how to do that. And then we just kind of went 
And uh, it was, you know, obviously a learning curve, but it's an immersive experience. It's like learning a language mm-hmm. to go, you know, to go live in Paris, you're going to learn French a little bit better than uh, an online course or whatever. It's a real thing. <laughs> Talk about jumping in with both feet, so to speak. Wow. Uh, yeah. When you mentioned the Sunshine Coast, I, like I said, I grew up in Vancouver. We had a, a cabin on the Sunshine Coast awesome. up in Powell River. So I know really when good. you say you went into Porto Cove, I know that up into Lund, I know exactly where you were. Did you go inside or outside Texada? Uh, we went... So we definitely went right by Texada. I think we anchored yeah. on Texada Island at one point. What's the other one with an S that's around there? Like Savory. Savory. Savory yeah. would be we're north. Catching crabs there. And uh, we beached on the beach. Where's Is that Savory where they have like warm water? Cause White got, sands. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like a Mexican beach. Yeah. yeah. We like, uh, we beached our boat there for the day just let it dry everyone's wondering what in the world yeah. the sailboat's doing dry, <laughs> but our our sailboat had a like a dagger board so it was a okay. water ballast boat so it could didn't hurt nothing to just let it dry out when the the tide but i remember getting some funny looks everyone's wondering what the sailboat's doing on the beach but the tide came in and okay i guess it's time to go <laughs> time to go that's that's a heck of a story i i i don't know if i could do it i like boating but i don't know if i could live on a boat for five months but more power to you yeah, it's it awesome was tight we got some pretty interesting look because we were the one we bought in mexico was a 34 foot sailboat which sounds big but a, a 34 foot sailboat small compared to a power boat of that size it's like half mm-hmm. the volume you know interior space so it was a basically a two-person boat with six people on it so it, uh, but the weather is good and that's something that i don't know if it wasn't intimidating to me anyways i'm sure there was moments I've been accused of having an optimistic memory by people who have hiked <laughs> stuff like that, but it was, uh, you know, it's nice every day. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd imagine there's an also uh, ample opportunity to be, uh, living off the land a little more while living off the water. So I imagine you spent a lot of your time fishing and, and foraging and stuff like that. Yeah. We fished every day, literally like most of the times we were woke up to William squealing on the deck. Cause he had got a fish and you hear a fish you know, on, on the top of the, of the boat. So we didn't even go out of our way. Like we didn't go anywhere to fish, but we caught fish every day. Like in the water, especially as you go north of the Sea of Cortez, it's so clear, you see the fish. So you'd be like, oh, there's a halibut. And then you catch it to 30 feet down, you know. So it, it's pretty, pretty special. And like I've seen on National Geographic, you know, like where they have those bait balls, like the big balls of uh, – schools of fish and there's like the whales scooping and the birds die bombing them from above and and we got to see that you know the kids are supposed to be doing their homeschooling and then all of a sudden kush big humpback right beside them you know so th- they got to see and that was normal i don't think they'll realize till they're older just what a thing that was like where you know we whales you could was a normal everyday thing because when we were in Banderas Bay, that's where the whales are calving and it was, there were everywhere, you know, and sea lions and yeah, it was, it was pretty cool that we'd be in the boat. And then these, uh, Jack Cravals, they call them Toros because, which means bulls in Spanish. Cause they just ram your boat. They just like come out of nowhere and just smack, but they'd be stunning the little fish against the hull of your boat to kill them or stun them to eat them. Right. So just wow. that you would never think of you, uh, you're just in the middle of it. Yeah. I've, I've watched videos of, uh, fishing, uh, for the, the 
GTs, the, the Grand Tavales or yeah, something, like the big ones. Yeah. yeah, giants, giants. And they're, they're, they're doing the same thing. They're just tearing through the water. And I couldn't imagine they're them slamming fast, the side of They're either. strong. It's like the one fish our kids didn't like to eat in Mexico because they're like the meat on these uh, Jack Creval Jacks or whatever they call them. Uh, it's like almost like pork. It's like we ended up using it. If you don't think of it fi- as fish, it's not bad. We used it like in spaghetti because it's like a replacement for ground meat, but it's dark and it's it doesn't taste like fish. Yeah. But and then we kind of got spoiled because we're catching yellowtail and we're catching, you know, some uh, really good halibut, you know, good eating fish. But yeah, that, oh, that's, just, a bucket that's list one for thing me. I remember. They're like, we're not eating these again. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, the bucket list for me, I absolutely love fishing. Uh, like I said, I grew up across from Central Park and we were fishing all the time. But the one I've never had a chance to get is anywhere, pretty much anywhere south of the mainland. Okay. I've never had a chance for the tropical, like Mahi Mahi. Those. Those would be a bucket list for me. I love that fish just to look at and to eat, but I've never had a chance they're to catch so them. They're so beautiful. Like when you see them in the water, a picture never does them justice because they're a hundred colors all at once. Like they're, they, they look yellow when you take them out of the water, but they're blue and yellow and green and you know, they're, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. But going back to the whales real briefly, you're, you're, you're not kidding when you say that that's like a core memory that sticks with you. Uh, we used to, we, we used to take the ferry over to Vancouver Island all the time. And occasionally you'd hear the captain come on and go off our port side. There's a pod of blah, 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 blah. And it was like, oh yeah, there they are. Cool. But you're, you're seeing them at a distance. And a buddy of mine, he lives in Euclid on the west coast of Vancouver yeah, yeah, Island. Yeah, I've been there. We have friends and, there. Oh, okay. And he, he, he has a a guiding business well like a little small guiding business and we were there and he after after his main work he owned uh, a fish processing plant there and it'd be okay well yeah I'll, I'll get off at three today like he did it for sport fishing type thing so fishermen would come in and he'd skin gut whatever process it for for them to take home and after one day about three o'clock four o'clock he'd say okay let's go out for four or five hours or whatever we went straight out to the harbor and we cut off to the left there down to not, not the banks, but like the bare, the bare rocks or whatever it's called out there. Yeah. And we see, we're tucked inside. We're a couple hundred yards from shore, not too far. And we see uh, a whale kind of comes up and hump. We're like, oh, that's awesome. He turns off the motor because it's when it's inside 200 meters or whatever it was. And then the next thing you see is it's 50, 60 feet off of one of the sides. We're like, Oh, this is awesome. And then on the sounder, you see it come underneath the boat and it's just like, oh my God. And this is eight, 10 years ago. I could still remember the colors of just the sounder and it going mad. He's like, that's the whale underneath us. It's just like, man, I I couldn't imagine seeing that on a, almost on a daily basis in their natural environment where they're calving. Like we got lucky to see them as they were kind of holding on their way south or north, whatever direction they were going at that time. But wow, that's talk about imprinting memories in the kids yeah it's pretty special absolutely so let's let's stay on that we're having a great chat and let's let's talk about storytelling you do that really really well as evidenced by this conversation we're having but you do it really well on social media uh you've got a youtube channel you've got the instagram and you've got your your facebook What's your favorite method of telling a story? Is it verbally? Is it through video? Because I know you did some great stuff on your YouTube. So what's what's your favorite method? 
That's a good question. Honestly, sitting around a campfire <laughs> would be my favorite method. Like I've, I've got into, I think I first started doing videos really just to show my kids these pack craft trips I was doing. Like uh, your audience isn't familiar. Pack craft is just like a little tiny inflatable boat you can put in your backpack. And because I like to explore, you know, you'd go whatever up one mountain range and down another. And so I, I had needed some sort of outlet because I was, I was working a job where I was in an office a lot and uh, just to get some fresh air and be unreachable for a while. And um, so anyways, I started making these videos, but, but then you figure out the connection. And when you have people telling you that, Hey, you've inspired me to do this. And because of this has brought this and now I'm doing this and I'm changing this. And, you know, and that's been, that was encouraging to me. Uh, I honestly haven't put a lot of thought into how to tell a story or how I like doing it. Um, I've just kind of done it. Like, um, you know, I, I never, I was a big holdout on Facebook for a while. I was a holdout on getting Instagram. I think I only got Instagram at one point because I needed to get some free thing from something. And then I started just posting to my hinterland page through Instagram because it was, you know, kill two birds with one stone sort of thing. Uh, I think I, I do like pictures though. Um, I don't, I do the opposite of what really good YouTubers do, which where they like storyboard and they have, they basically plan whatever they're doing, you know, for the video. I'm the, I do the opposite of that. Like my social media is just what I would be doing anyways, before I had it, it's what I was doing. So I'm just taking people along. So I'm not really a good example of how to have a successful social media thing. But uh, I think some people connect with that. It's just real. You know, it's not, it's not scripted. It's not, if, if we fail at something, it's in the video, <laughs> you know, if we get lost or this, breaks or this is just what's happening so it's uh for me that's what i like something that's slick and like uh i've basically never watched any hunting shows like i when i was guiding when i was a kid like i remember seeing some hunting shows in the lodge and just like people watch this crap like it was so ridiculous to me because it was so contrived right like you know they're trying to sneak up on the animal but the cameras on the other side of the dead animal like oh the camera got there somehow you know stuff like that which it i just don't get it you know so um but i connect with what's real you know uh and you know when you talk to people like, Oh, this guy's the real deal. I, I get this guy. Like someone, sometimes you meet someone for five minutes and you know that, Oh, I would go fishing with this guy. I would go hunting with this guy. You know? Completely agree. Uh, some of my favorite YouTube channels are the ones that are real. Like they're tripping and falling and they're ended up on their face and they're going, Oh damn it. And there's no, there's no forced edits. Uh, they, they miss a shot and they're like, well, that happens. That's part of it. Or they, 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 they miss a, the setting the hook properly. I don't know if you've ever watched Deer Meat for Dinner or Blue Gabe or Kelly Young on YouTube, but they're very, very similar cool. to that. Uh, Deer Meat for Dinner and Blue Gabe are brothers, okay. and Kelly Young is part of that group, or used to be anyway. But uh, uh, Deer Meat for Dinner is incredible. Uh, I think you'd really enjoy his channel. He's got something like three and a half million... 
three and a half million followers and it started then the, the name deer meat for dinner came up because him and his wife were uh dead poor a couple of years ago and he's like what can we do to make money and he goes well i'm passionate about hunting and telling that story and we're literally we literally have nothing right now except deer meat for dinner and they went there's the channel and it just it's it's ex exploded and it's a real story it's hunting and fishing and getting out together and doing what we do and just being a couple of guys around a campfire and gals around a campfire and it's it's a real it's a real authentic story there's no like i said there's no weird edits there's no animal down on this side and the camera happens to be there it's start to finish the guys they don't even wear shoes most of the time okay they're really connected they're based out of florida it's okay. they're like okay well we need to go out and get something for dinner there's hogs on the ranch so that's and they talk about wildlife management on the ranch and how they castrate they castrate the hogs to produce better meat oh it's it's a really really cool channel and it's very very similar to what what you do and the authenticity and that's so important right it's 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 easy to fake a story. It's hard to tell a real one where there's an actual emotional attachment. So yeah, definitely check that out. Kind of went on a tangent there, but we touched really briefly on on uh, your kids and and Silas in particular is the one that I see all the time on your channel, and he's he's front and center. I, I watched a video the other day of him skinning a wolf on your YouTube and there's actually a ton of comments on it. And it wasn't the type of comments you'd expect seeing a young boy skinning a wolf of what are you doing? That's murdering, et cetera, et cetera. It was a oh, lot of those, but I delete. Oh yeah. <laughs> we got, <laughs> well, I got, we tried to take down my Facebook page numerous times. I almost yeah. completely lost it. And that's why I don't usually post wolf stuff. Cause yeah, people think a wolf is a mythical creature of some, and it's because they don't, have a relationship with wolves and mm -hmm. I see both sides of it because there's some people and I get these comments too on Facebook, only good wolf is a dead wolf and, and people who just don't know. Um, but it's, uh, I get shot at from both sides on these discussions because I'm trying to represent boots on the ground here where with my work, I do constantly dealing with wolves killing cattle you know, and it's brutal yep. how they do it. And it's, yep. but that's, it doesn't mean they're bad. It's just a wolf being a wolf. So it's that's not right. a good, bad, or otherwise it's just how it is. And it's with some of these wildlife management things. Uh, that's one of the most rewarding parts of what I get to be a part of is you help someone, you help bring a little understanding because you mm -hmm. can, some people can wrap their heads around eating a deer, but they're like, well, you're eating that Martin. No, but you don't necessarily understand how it works. Like 70% of those juveniles aren't going to make the winter, you know, and right. if you don't, uh, if there's, you could let nature do its course. You can have this Disney idealistic understanding of it, but nature taking its course is starvation, disease, exposure, right? That's so right. if we have an opportunity to kind of level out those crash boom bust cycles and positively affect the whole ecosystem, I think there's some responsibility to do that. You know, and that can get abused and can get ridiculous. And But uh, I forget what the, oh, we were talking about, you know, Silas skinning a wolf on YouTube. And it's, uh, you know, he's doing, he's got nine coyotes thawing right now that he's working on. And um, I think it's easy to have ideas 
at when you're at a distance from these things, right? And I think right. with one of the blessings of the whole COVID thing is people started to realize like how isolated they were and how distanced mm-hmm. they were from their own food, from the right. from from the the process of actually obtaining food and from the land. And and mm-hmm. there's been people who've been awakened to that. I don't even know where to start, you know. Yep. And uh, it's pretty good. That's one thing, you know people because all of our children are involved to some extent in this like we just cut up we cut up three deer in one day and did half a muskox the same day you know um silas is the least camera shy so he's in it more um but and it's because he also this is his little side business he does some custom skinning for people and he does a lot of tan he's tan like 300 hides and um and he works like we don't ever have to he literally started homeschooling because basically school was cutting into his trapping and he didn't like that. You know, after living on the boat, he got the concept that you could be done your school in 45 minutes a day. And it's hard to go back to sitting in a classroom when you've got mm-hmm. to be outside. Eh? But uh, yeah, so I forgot where we're going. But got on oh yeah, it totally. We, we, we went on a little bit of a tangent there, but it makes sense with the conversation flow. And that's why I like having these chats with people. I, I do the same thing. I deal with a lot of wolves and coyotes and they're, they're they're they can be vicious they're they're beautiful like, nature is beautiful but she's also vicious in the same breath and we owe it as, as human beings we have an impact on the landscape and that's where a lot of the disconnect seems to come along is people don't seem to realize well nature taking its course is us being involved in that management side of things there's no there's no lawful hunting or trapping seasons anywhere in areas that can't sustain them that don't have scientific and first nations input it's we we take the uh the 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 extras on the landscape right there's we we take the surplus we we take ones that are written into the management plan that are not going to survive due to a myriad of different issues whether it's predation whether it's starvation disease vehicle incidents etc etc and it's People, you said it perfectly in, in COVID, people distance themselves from food and they realized really quickly that, oops, this could be a bit of a problem if things change. And we've had a lot of traffic to our website for the same sort of thing where it's people are looking at recipes and how to get involved. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's beautiful what you're doing with the getting your kids involved so early. Like my daughter's 10 and she's studying for her hunting license right now. She's been involved ever since she could walk and she knows where her food comes from she's like all right well what what do you want for when we meal plan for example it's well what do you want this week okay can we do moose burgers or can we have deer steaks or can we have bear chili and it's 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 so vitally important especially in this day and age to have that not even even if you're not doing it for the connection but just knowing a little bit of self-sufficiency it's huge and that that can tie right into you bringing the kids out there like you kind of got into it a little bit, but why is it so important to you to get the kids involved? Yeah, I I think it's, it's connecting them with something bigger than themselves and also giving them context to their place and thing, because, you know, you can, it just continually blows me away of people who eat meat yet will be aghast that something is died. Like they're just not putting the two and two together. Right. And that's something our kids haven't had to deal with because, you know, my daughter has pet bunnies that she loves and cuddles with, but she loves to hunt rabbits. 
you know, and it's never been, that's never been a weird thing. That's never been a disconnect. That's just part of life. And, and rabbits are made out of meat and they taste good. And they, they're a food chain item. They're a building block of the whole thing. And same with grouse. And uh, they're, that, that is how the world works. You can try to stick your head in the sand. Like I remember the conversation around Stanley Park when all those coyotes are biting people. And, and the comments on those posts on social media were just so enlightening to how disconnected people have become, you know, and they're like, oh, the coyotes were there first. And actually they weren't <laughs> for one in that area, you know, and the coyotes are basically there because we made them this great habitat and then have removed any way for them to have a natural pressure competition relationship with other predators. And, you know, we've created this problem and, you know, it's wrong to blame the coyotes, but it's also wrong for us to stick our head in the sand and say, you know, we should just let them be. They were here first. Cause that's not really true. Right. And it's, it's like all of these things. And I see it all the time because I'm working on the wildlife management, these policies that people put in place and these practices, we have an impact on the wildlife in our area, whether that's by building a house, you know, and displacing grasslands and paving parking lots over whatever, we don't get the option of not impacting the natural world. So we can take responsibility for that and actively uh, be a beneficial management um, part of, of the ecosystem, or we could just pretend like there's this impulse to make wilderness like a zoo. And, and what will happen when no one is connected to the land is it'll just be gone because industry will gobble it up. You know, all, all of these, uh, if, if no one ever had went down, rafted down the Grand Canyon, for example, like I've seen pictures, but to raft it from the bottom is a different ballgame. Uh, if no one had ever been down it, it would have got dammed up and no one would have cared, Right. It's the same thing with wilderness. If no one had been out there sheep hunting, you know, do you need to hunt a bighorn sheep to survive? No. Um, but those rams don't last forever. And um, but by staying connected to that and being immersed in that environment, like there's easier ways to get meat. But those mountains will be preserved because people are out there. You know, those animals, the people are who are passionate about sheep are sheep hunters, by and large, the ones doing everything for conservation, the ones who are raising the alarm. People are out there. Like the, the way, you know, we're having, uh, Alberta's having issue with wild boar, for example. The ones who are going to know about that is the trappers are going to be the first to know because they're out there. They can see, they know what the difference between a track is. It's the tracks things are fun because there's some people who literally, I don't know why, but they can't put the connection between what a foot looks like to what kind of track it would be in the snow. Right. But it, it's so fun to learn like that, you know, and uh, people who maybe will never not live in the city have a little bit of a window and a little bit of perspective that it will serve them well, no matter where they're at. That's exactly it, right? It's it, it's too many people have, as you said, distanced themselves and they, they forget where they've come from. And it's funny that you mentioned the, the, the track thing. <laughs> you see it all the time on some of your posts where somebody will post something that they found online and they'll argue and go, no, that is a coyote. And you're like, coyotes don't have five toes. I don't know where that pe that person got that, but it's it, it, it seems so so basic. But well, people correct me all the time about my own. Oh, yeah. I'm like, 
okay, <laughs> like whatever. Like I've, I'm sharing this for fun, but it's uh, it's it's how we learn, right? If, if That's it's right. not a safe place to make mistakes, you're not going to learn. And, you know, it's so exciting for me. I've had people write me messages where they're like, I was anti-trapping, anti-hunting. I basically saying I didn't get it, but you've, you've broadened my worldview. And that's, that's cool because my Facebook friends are into two drastically different groups. Like I have a bunch of sailing pack rafting friends who are like uber liberal, you know, one side of the things. And then I have like some of my hunting friends are just way over on the other side of thing. And, and, they're not talking, they're talking past each other. They're not talking to each other. Yeah, Social media right. really breeds that kind of divisive thing, but it doesn't have to. And that's why I love that's right. what you guys are doing because it's trying to get the same people around one campfire and mm-hmm. to hear each other. And that's, that's awesome. That's right. That's, that's right. I appreciate that. It's, it's, it's so important. Like we, we know not everybody's going to want to hunt. We know not everybody's going to want to trap. Hell you, you, we know not everybody's going to like it or agree with it. But what we're trying to do is get that understanding. Hey, I don't like it, but I understand its its place on the landscape and wildlife management. And as, as you said, with the first line of defense for wildlife and habitat is hunters and anglers and conservationists and people that are out there seeing it firsthand. When I don't, you probably saw about a year and a bit ago, there was uh a sheep die off in the, the Kootenays area. Yeah. Uh, Grand, Grand Forks, sorry, uh, the Okanagan. There was a, there was a blue tongue that uh, went through like a little midge that went through and killed off a ton of sheep. First ones to report that were people paying attention to the sheep, right? It was hunters out there that went, Whoa, this, this isn't right. And reported it and we were able to take action. And I imagine you guys are seeing that as well with the, the CWD reports, right? Who are the ones seeing that firsthand in the wild boar? that's us and we're not out there going hey we want to kill them all we're out there going this isn't right if if there's something going on here let us help how can we help and we're the first ones to sign to throw up our hand and go wait a minute the the habitat and the carrying capacity can't handle this right now we should shut it down so there's there's a big misconception that hunters want to kill everything and that's completely false we want to see it pursue uh protected in perpetuity it's 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 a myth that we we work hard to try and dispel and i, I imagine you see that all the time right with the with, with with your channels yeah and i think a lot of times people have a disneyfied view of wildlife that they don't understand it's a renewable resource right like mm-hmm. if you take you can take up 70 80 percent of a coyote population every year yep. and you won't have less coyotes but the coyotes will you have less problems with coyotes because there's pressure on them they're not going to be eating your cats and dogs as much they're not going to have the shoulder mites they're not going to have diseases Mm -hmm. and and they're going to be those coyotes are going to die anyways you know if we just left them be and and that's just that's just the truth of how it works so there's um we have to be connected enough to it's always easy easier to have like a pat answer like killing equals bad you know that's right leave it's like not ever uh allowing forest fires to burn there's constant mm-hmm. you can just eventually those fi- jasper is going to burn 
It's always oh. going to burn. <laughs> yep. That's normal. But you can stave that off as long as you want. But it's eventually when it burns now, it's going to really burn because you've been putting out these fires for so long. You know, that trees are, yes, it takes a while, but it's renewable. Wildlife is the same thing mm -hmm. on a shorter cycle. Um, we got to think in terms of population health, not uh, an unrealistic idea of uh, what any particular animal uh, is and isn't. You, you you hit it again and we actually went through uh banff this past summer went to drumheller for a little bit of a vacation and i hadn't been through there in years and i'd heard the stories about uh the the beetle kill and how bad it looks and we went through it was like oh man this 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 hits one lightning strike the wrong way it's just gonna go and same with jasper when we came through because we came through from the prince george side we went down through the parkway and it was just like oh man this goes it's gonna go and it's gonna go big and it all boils down to that proper management do we, do we want to take out all the trees no do we want to see them managed properly absolutely little uh, managed fires here and there are great for wildlife it's it brings back it gets rid of the thick understory and it brings back fresh growth and it lets lets things go back to what nature wants them to be but we see it every year right you guys had some nasty nasty fires over the years as as, as we did yeah, yeah. just by not managing it properly and it's the same with wildlife it's 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 an emotional topic with a scientific answer and I've, I've used what you said there more than once it's it's a disney sort of perspective on thing and it, when we were kids bambi was a great movie but when you, you absolutely hated what happened the first the first few minutes right with the with, with the big bad hunter coming in it's like oh man you don't do right and people pe people see that hell you see uh they, they've got a kind of a skewed perspective on on things that's through no fault of their own there was a commercial a few years ago uh, it was like some laundry soap thing where there's a, a bear on the ice and it okay. comes down and it scares the people away and it takes off its outfit and like all its fur and it puts it in there and people are like oh it's so cute and they actually think bears do that and like the the polar bear for coca-cola has got false teeth and no <laughs> that's not really what happens it's it's unfortunate but through through proper storytelling and and connections and understanding like we're we're trying to put out there we'll we'll hopefully change that so let's let's pivot to something that's a little less contentious and <laughs> emotional let's get into some fun stuff so you've obviously had a ton of experiences over the years and this will kind of be a, a softball towards you you can either hit it out of the park or deflect it to a foul ball but it, it it's going to be a tough question but it might not be so if you could go back through all of the experiences you've had from now to when you first started, is there a, an experience that really sticks out for you as being one of your favorites? I think, I'm not sure. I never really think in terms of favorites, but something that was definitely pivotal for me, and I was 13 years old, I was just right same age as Silas was when he, when he really first got into the trapping. And I had um, somehow I got myself invited on my uncle's trap line with this guy who was, it was in the Chinchaga area. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's one of the last, and it's not like it used to be, but it was a wild area at that time. If you ever want to read a good book, uh, 
called Amazon of the North by Joanne Potter. And my uncle anyways had uh, bought their hunting camp and we were trapping uh, out there and it was 50 below when we left the cabin. Uh, and that was, you know, when the snow was just so, when it's, once it's past like 40 something, snow crunches different. The air breathes different. Everything is just different. And it was almost like uh, you're more, your senses are heightened. It's it just an, another thing. And uh, anyways, there's this Wolverine that was robbing the line. And this was in the 90s when uh, links were worth something. Like there was actually money to be made in trapping in the 80s and 90s. Like uh, the potters put their kids through college off that trap line. And we were this Wolverine was going basically killing every lynx that it would find because they were trapping with uh, restraining traps at that point so the lynx could defend themselves because or else they would just be gone before you could get there, right? And then, but this Wolverine would kill every lynx, eat like a piece of their liver, ruin their $600 hides and then move along. So this trapper was just getting more wound up and he was kind of a gruff character as we went. And anyways, eventually this Wolverine made a mistake and um, got caught in a lynx set. But a lynx set is not designed to hold a Wolverine. Wolverine just a whole nother class of animal where he punches above his weight class and he knows it. And uh, they use a, a popular drag um, because a lynx will just, or coyote, fox, wolf even, will just go in the nearest thicket, get tangled up in the drag, and then they'll be waiting for it. But this wolverine went straight on the snowmobile trail, and we tracked him for 40 miles all day. You know, and we had short days to begin with, you know, because it was, it was New Year's Eve. Yeah. So, yeah, right around this time of year. And uh, eventually the uh, wolverine departs from the trail, and he's like – He's in a rush, so he's basically says, "Make a fire, I'll be back." You know, and I had a fair bit of experience at that point, but not a ton. And I never really thought about it until my mom, I found out later, got mad at my uncle because he was gone for like thirteen hours. So I, and it's it was fifty below. So I I found matches in the skidoo and I still remember like talking about things that you remember it was a co-op book of paper matches and I opened the thing and there was four matches and I they were old and like powdered anyways I broke and dropped three of them I'm literally on the last match and I'm like okay so in my teenager brain I thought this through what am I gonna do so I, I get a, some sticks and I dip them in the gas tank of the snowmobile making sure not to get anything whatever any contamination in the gas tank but at this point like I know it was too cold that uh, I couldn't just sit there it would have been serious right um, so anyways yeah last match get the fire started you know and there was so much snow and he was gone so long that I melted down like the pit from the snow melting down was like taller than me. And I had to keep going farther and farther. And all the time he told me, watch for the Wolverine coming back. I'm going to loop around, right? Uh, but it, it never did. Finally, he comes back dragging this Wolverine. I, I think it was 13 hours later. Like that's what I remember anyways. And then the uh, – Anyways, and he had a quite a ordeal where he had he finally got close enough to it, and I think he treated it. He shot it with his twenty two two fifty, but the firing fin pro froze after the first shot because it's fifty below, right? And he probably had some oil on the gun, 
And then it came at him, like jumped at him from the tree and like knocked him down. I can't remember the whole story because he was just a very, he didn't talk much, this guy. But he ended up having a pistol, 22, inside of his snowsuit and he shot it three more times. So it's it quite the ordeal. Uh, but I remember that day, not just because of that, because on the way back after all that, we're still checking straps. And I had set a blind set for wolves in our skidoo trail on the way in and I caught a wolf on the way out and that's the first wolf I ever caught and uh, I remember because we had a wolverine a wolf a fisher martin and a lynx and I remember him telling me like that was more money than I had made my entire life was in that day you know and that stuck with me because you know and as a kid that's how I had like bought my first trike was with foxes that I had tanned and you know stuff like that and uh but my takeaway was not that there's money in trapping was that, uh, whoa, I survived. Like I was not just, I wasn't on a tour, right? I was in there. I was responsible for myself. I went through something that was difficult and it, 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 it changed me. Right. That, that was, uh, if you ever get bored, look up uh, wood river pack rafting expedition. But I, it was a packraft trip that me and a friend went that was really a life-changing thing for me because basically we almost died. We lost our boats. We almost drowned. We had no food for a while. Um, but after going through that, you know, I have no fear of running out of food ever because I know what it's like to run out of food and it's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? I, I know how I react when facing those things and I'm on the other side of that. So actually giving me a lot of confidence, you know, it, it also woke me up that, Oh, that was kind of dumb. You know, I sh shouldn't have done that, but it's, uh, those are the sort of moments, you know, video games, entertainment, they're substituting for those sort of th experiences. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the same. Not everyone's going to be like that in the same way. Not everyone's going to, be a hunter where they need to be the person who harvests their own game to understand it. Uh, That's right. But there is something different uh, in your respect for the animal when you're the one to dispatch it because you know the value of that life. You know, it's the same way when you, you don't have to climb a mountain to appreciate the beauty of it, but it's a little mm -hmm. different from that vantage point. That's right. That's right. Perfectly said. Uh, that's a hell of a, I, I, I've dealt with wolverines before, but not to that extent. I know that it's completely different when you're approaching them versus approaching a lynx or a coyote or even a wolf. The, yeah, no, wolves, have a, wolves generally are timid they, when caught. No, they are. They it's are. You'll have a hundred totally pound different, wolf. Like wolverines and caribou are my favorite animals because you really only find them in real wilderness, generally speaking. That's right. You know, a caribou, because they're so sensitive to impacts, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and Wolverine just because of, of where they are, but they're, it's a different, um, yeah, it just, it, you, uh, you can have an idea. I haven't seen a Disneyfied version of Wolverine yet. Nope. Nope. Yeah. My first experience with a Wolverine, I was probably hunting about two years, three years. And I, I was up here with a buddy we'd pulled off to the side of a forest service road, just to, to have lunch and it, there was a about a 10 year old plantation of uh, pine on the right and we're sitting there and we're facing down the road and see this thing come out I'm like oh it's a small bear and it comes out and it walks towards us and I go what the heck is that because I hadn't had experience he goes he's a 
forestry guy for years and he goes that's a wolverine and i'm like oh and it's maybe 100 yards up and it's walking towards us and we're standing there we're making noise we've got like a little jet boil going and the truck is on the side of the road and it keeps coming towards us and it gets to about 25 yards from us and it it stops it stares at us and it keeps coming and he's like get in the truck i'm like why he goes get in the truck <laughs> this thing walked right by us and just kept going didn't even care we were there he was what 40 pounds maybe on the high end 30 pounds he wasn't just a, a stocky thing but he 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 owned that place and he knew it they are just badass animals yeah, i get a chuckle out of people who say well bears never do this or coyotes <laughs> because everyone's an expert from where they are it's the same thing with when i'm guiding and someone is from georgia and telling me how to whitetail hunt in alberta i'm like i'm yeah. gonna listen it's gonna but honestly your experience might work against you because it's not always the same and it's the same right. thing with you know i've watched bears thousands of them up close and personal and mm -hmm. there's the odd one that's just a loose cannon. There's odd one that's just crazy. You know, it's a bear down grizzly in the Arctic where I guide up north is not the same as your typical grizzly in the Rocky Mountains. They're like a polar. They don't give a crap. Like they, they don't, you're something new. They have no reason to believe they should be afraid of you. And they're not. Right. They'll, they'll eat your jerry can just to see what it tastes like. That's like, right. It's not there's not a universal principle and we have this idea okay wolves are always scared of people and if they're not they must have a disease mm -hmm. or they've just you're in the real bush and they've never i've had wolves run alongside me as i'm canoeing down the river they're just curious they never seen a canoe they never seen a person right um that's what happens though when you have a few generations of wolves where there's no pressure and then they're yanking people out of tents and tents. it can happen it's not because we've created some monster it's just animals being animals and uh it's not as simple as people like to speak in platitudes about it that's right that's right so coming up on an hour here let's end it with a fun one bucket list hunting or fishing what is it if you could do one thing that's a great question i honestly don't think in terms of that because i don't have a list i'm basically open to anything going anywhere my top choice would be to do something like i want to do like a coming of age trip with each of our kids and uh i think that would be it is and just do what the kids want to do because i enjoy all new things it's not like i'm at the point with hunting i don't care if i get another animal i it's way more exciting for me to be with someone else when they're getting their first muskox or this or that you know that's exciting to me so um yeah I, I don't have anything specific it's sharing that experience with the people who mean the most to me and expanding that circle of people who mean something to me because ultimately that's what lasts and that's what's valuable think that's a perfect way to end it that's about what it is right it's about passing it on to the next person i'm at the same point in my career it's essentially what memories can i help you or the next person come up with and those shared experiences so ben where would people find you if they were looking for you on social media uh you could yeah hinterland outdoors on facebook i think it's hinterland underscore outdoors on instagram youtube dot com slash whatever hinterland outdoors on uh, youtube 
And we have uh, videos of our sailing trip too, if you're interested in that. Um, that's basically what I got, but not hard to find. You look up Ben Brochu and probably they'll be able to find me. Awesome. We'll drop your, your contact info in the, in the show notes. So Ben, I'd absolutely love this conversation. Totally appreciate you taking the time. Thanks again. Eh? Cool. Thanks for having me.